This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Tuesday, March the 7th, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the show today, the Ontario government will fund the Luxterna Gene Therapy. Dr. Larissa Moniz from Fighting Blindness Canada will react to the news. And make a disability benefit works its way through Parliament. And the show begins today in the halls of Parliament. Lots of federal government stories as part of the top story of the day. The federal government is delving deeper into possible foreign interference in Canada's last two elections. A parliamentary committee on national security will be looking into the matter. And Prime Minister Justin Trudeau will appoint a rapporteur to come up with any policy frameworks. We will ask the independent special rapporteur as one of the first tasks of their mandate to provide the government with a recommendation as to what the appropriate next step should be, whether it be an inquiry, an investigation, or a judicial review, and what the scope of that work may be. Trudeau reflected on how this analysis should be non-political. We've seen a level of partisanship around this question that, for me, requires us to take a step back and to task an eminent, unimpeachable expert, respected and trusted by Canadians, to be able to make recommendations as to what the best path is forward. Opposition parties are calling for a public inquiry. Staying in Ottawa, top grocery executives will testify at a House of Commons committee tomorrow. MPs will have the opportunity to ask about rising food costs and rising corporate profits. Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives senior economist David McDonald thinks there's a clear line of questioning executives should face. The, the question is, why are they making more profit? And, you know, I think that that may be something that MPs can ask, although you know, it would likely have to involve some sort of additional disclosure from the grocery stores as opposed to just pointed questions in um, in a committee room. McDonald says there's another key element that politicians should press for. One of the things the MPs could ask is whether the grocery store chains will all commit to providing full access to their books to the Competition Bureau during its investigation um, that's set to report out in, in June. Of course, the The Competition Bureau cannot compel the grocery stores to do that, but the grocery stores can volunteer additional information. Switching gears to another story about food, but also about climate. A new report finds that changing eating habits could prevent one degree of global warming. Jackie Quinn shares some of the findings. A study published in Nature Climate Change says if people continue consuming food the way they do, it will push the planet past the 2.7 degree warming limit sought in the Paris Climate Accord. The majority of greenhouse gas emissions come from three major sources, meat from animals like cows, sheep and goats, dairy products and rice, which all emit large amounts of methane. 
Some suggestions to reduce those emissions include eating less meat, planting crops that draw down carbon from the atmosphere, and food waste recycling to reduce emissions from decaying food. Many experts, though, are skeptical about whether those recommendations will be put into practice. I'm Jackie Quinn. And coming back to the halls of Parliament, the CEO of Google has rejected a summons by Ottawa to appear before a House of Commons committee. Mickey Juric has the story. Members of Parliament were hoping to get the CEO of Google and three other executives in the hot seat today, but they were snubbed. MPs are looking for answers after Google confirmed it's running a temporary test that is limiting news to some of its Canadian users on its popular search engine. It's in response to the Liberal government's online streaming act, which would put a price on news links. Just one executive, the head of Google Canada, agreed to appear before the committee. New Democrat MP Peter Julian says he will hold the other executives who live in the United States to account. The House of Commons can enforce the summons if they ever set foot in Canada, but it would be considered a rare move. Mickey Judich, The Canadian Press, Ottawa. And one more federal story for you. Justice Minister David Lametti says he will discuss reforming Canada's bail system when he meets with his provincial counterparts this Friday. Brenda Molina-Navidad looks ahead. The premiers earlier this year called on the feds to establish a reverse onus system for firearm offenses that would require the person seeking bail to show why they should not stay behind bars. Lametti has told a parliamentary committee meeting he's prepared to make changes to the criminal code and has already talked with some provincial counterparts about the issue. But he says bail is a fundamental right and any law making it harder to access runs the risk of being contrary to the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. He wouldn't say when the Liberal government plans to act. Brenda Molina Navidad, The Canadian Press. That's your look at the news. Here are the daily polls. At Accessible Media is where you vote on Twitter. At Accessible Media Inc. is where you vote on Facebook. And there was lots of reaction to Monday's question when you were asked, how would you describe your city or town's snow removal policies? 12% of you said good. 53% of you said bad, and 35% of you said mediocre. Lots of comments from you in the comment section or the reply button. Leah tweets in, every year seniors and disabled people are lonely and isolated all winter long because there's no access in hashtag YEG, otherwise known as Edmonton. Our woke city council has $100 million for bike lanes, but $0 for accessibility, hashtag ableism and ageism. Along with this tweet, Leah shared a picture. The image shows an empty parking spot painted with a yellow universal symbol for access below the symbol in the text it reads is this the only time you put yourself in my place meanwhile over in quebec greg david posts on facebook at accessible media inc really good roads are cleared within hours here in smallish town quebec good old chelsea quebec beautiful part of the country clayton writes in on facebook horrible bad less than 50 percent of our sidewalks get plowed the ones that do get plowed are often snow covered and icy and leona sends in a pretty long response here i'm going to read the whole thing but i'm going to quibble with it a little bit it's a tough question to answer an understaffed public works and a winter of heavy snow fall 
need to be factored in how the removal is rated. We had days where it snowed heavily all day and into the next there were days of squalls and then a few clear days to get caught up only to be dumped on again. Our main road is a highway. The city did everything they could to keep it clear and safe, but that meant side roads and walkways suffered. Bus shelters were surrounded with high banks. For those of us with disabilities, it was a winter of problems. For the city, it was a winter of trying to keep main roads open to keep us functioning. So here's where I quibble with Leona a little bit here because there was something she said right off the top that I think really matters. An understaffed public works and winter of heavy snowfall need to be factored into how the removal is rated. So I agree, and that's why I phrased the question like I did because an understaffed public works department that's a policy decision. I didn't use the word, how would you describe the efforts of your city or town at clearing the snow? I'd say, what's the policy? And if you understaff your public works department, then your outcome is going to be understandable. It's going to be difficult, but that's a decision. That's a policy. That's tax dollars at work. Now, maybe I might disagree with uh, some phrasing from an earlier response about the woke city council and bike lanes. I would say that funding is funding and we need, we need to be thinking about different ways to fund our cities. But yeah, the, the, the policy itself is bad if you understaff your public works department. And then no matter how much snow falls, if you don't have enough people to clean the snow, you know what's going to happen. And a bit of a follow-up to my observation from yesterday, uh, those mountains of snow and ice in the middle of sidewalks that I encountered on my way into work yesterday, still there today. And the snow banks on the sides of the sidewalks, even bigger. You can't even uh, pass by somebody walking uh, two by two or one by one, I should say, without having to step in the snow. So... Pretty much at this point, the efforts 72 hours after the storm in Toronto continue to be poor, poor, poor. Today's Daily Poll will relate to a story from the regional news a little bit later on about the Ontario Autism Program and a lack of understanding of where to get information about Ontario's new autism program. So I'm asking you this simple question, which does not have a simple answer. Do you find it difficult to access information about government services? Do you find it difficult to access information about government services? Yes or no? At Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. This poll is somewhat spawned from that Ontario story. I also have a friend of mine who posted on Facebook over the weekend saying, does anybody know where to find information about applying for the disability tax credit as one of her children has a disability? And there were a lot of people who were very confused and not knowing where to go. I know I had a question about my RDSP, my registered disability savings plan, uh, a few months ago, and it took a lot of clicking to find what I was looking for. And even then, I didn't quite get the exact information that I needed. So I would tell you that it's actually quite difficult. There's a lot of legalese and not a lot of plain language, a lot of semicolons and colons and commas and hashes and dashes to try and find what you're looking for when you need oftentimes answers to very simple questions. Alex, I demand your answer to this simple question. <laughs> what do you make of this question of the day? Alex Smythe, do you find it difficult to access information about government services? Absolutely, Dave. And it's one of those issues where you can look at all levels of government and each level has their own issues. Uh, I think back what, immediately when I, I thought of this question, beyond the the kind of ones that you touched on already, like finding information on RDSP and, and, and disability-related uh, benefits and services, I thought about when I was working on Postcards From, where it literally involved going into different communities across the country, connecting with the uh, 
the cities with the provinces and sometimes on the federal level to coordinate everything because of filming rights permits, all those sorts of uh, um, hurdles that you have to jump through in order to, to film a travel show. And I can tell you, there were so many different times where I would be looking up on a website and thinking to myself, there is no one here to who is a media contact to to actually call or inform. It's just like I have to call up basically the assistant to the mayor of the town to try to see. It's like, am I okay to film in in your your pretty sizable town, if not city, like of over a hundred thousand people? Oh yeah, sure, no, it's fine. But there, there was no actual like directory of like who should I actually be bringing these inquiries to and sometimes that even extended to provinces like when i was in pei you know the it's the smallest province uh, uh in canada but it was still like okay there's not uh, any real clarity of where i need to go with my my questions who do i need to talk to same thing with alberta when i was looking to film so i find it's really inconsistent where you you can go to if you don't have a uh, a basic broad and really common question you're probably going to struggle a bit to find the information and, and the information could be there but it could be hidden behind like six or ten pages yeah you have to click through you have to go all these different menus to, in order to finally get to where you need to go yeah and it goes well beyond the faqs right it's not you can't just solve this with a frequently asked question page you have to lay out information in a simple manner yeah. and that's the one thing that i find a lot of governments struggle with on their websites certainly oftentimes that we're not even accounting what it means to call somebody call a department wait on hold for three or four hours and then be given a runaround by uh by any agents of any uh, civil service or bureaucracy uh, that may be out there. But yeah, let, let the websites themselves, there's just, no, no there's legalese for a reason because we're talking yeah. about legal frameworks. They don't want to get sued. They need to make sure they're providing thorough information. But as soon as you start having semicolons and colons everywhere, then you're no longer providing information. It's no longer plain text. You're just covering your own butt legally as opposed to giving people information that they need. So Alex and I both say, yes, it's too hard to find information. What about you? You should vote at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, at Accessible Media on Twitter. You can send an email, feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca, or give a phone call, 1-866-509-4545. That's 1-866-509-4545. Let's go back to Alex for the National Weather Update. Here is your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Starting off in St. John's, Newfoundland today, there's periods of snow or freezing rain in the morning and then changing to rain in the afternoon. There's up to two centimeters of snow expected and four millimeters of rain. There's also wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour today. The highest uh, plus two, but feeling like minus nine. To Halifax, Nova Scotia, it's mainly cloudy with a chance of snow or freezing rain this morning. The high is 2 degrees as well, feeling a bit cooler at minus 10. In Montreal, Quebec, it's cloudy with a chance of snow in the morning and early afternoon today. The high is minus 2, feeling again like minus 10. To Ottawa, Ontario, it's cloudy with some snow this morning. There's also wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour. The high is minus 4, but feeling cooler at minus 16. Here in Toronto, Ontario, it's cloudy this morning, but they're clearing out. There's also wind gusts up to 60 kilometers per hour. The high is plus two, feeling like minus nine with a wind chill. The Thunder Bay, Ontario, 
It's mainly sunny today, a high of plus one, and with that wind chill makes it feel like minus seven. In Winnipeg, Manitoba, clouds are rolling in today. The high is minus 11, but with that wind chill, it feels more like minus 31 today. In Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, very similar conditions. Clouds rolling in in the morning. There's also wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour. The high is minus 12, but feeling like minus 29 with the wind chill. In Calgary, Alberta, it's a mix of sun and clouds with a chance of snow today. The high is minus seven and feeling like minus 25. In Edmonton, Alberta, it's a mix of sun and clouds with a chance of snow. The high is minus six, but with that wind chill, it's more like minus 22. Up in Yellowknife Northwest Territories, it's mainly sunny, but bitterly cold again. It's a high of minus 18, feeling like minus 39 with that wind chill. To Vancouver, BC, where it's a mix of sun and clouds with a chance of rain early in the morning, and the high is nine degrees today. And finally, in Victoria, BC, it's a mix of sun and clouds with a chance of rain in the afternoon, and the high is seven degrees today. That's your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Alex. Coming up after the break, on, the Ontario government has approved funding for the Luxturna gene therapy. Dr. Larissa Moniz from Fighting Blindness Canada will react to the news. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The Government of Ontario announced last week that it will cover the costs of the Luxterna gene therapy for patients. The gene therapy targets the RPE65 gene and has worked to restore some sight in patients. Dr. Larissa Moniz is the Director of Research and Mission Programs at Fighting Blindness Canada. Dr. Moniz, thank you so much for making time to be on the show again. At the rate it's been over the last month or so, we're going to change the name of the show to now with Dr. Larissa Moniz. I was going to say, well, I always love to come here and talk about eye health. <laughs> Absolutely, and we're so grateful for the time you spend with us. Uh, Dr. Moniz, first and foremost, what's your reaction to this news? Um, we were just um, so excited. It's been a really long time. Luxterna was approved by Health Canada in 2020, and since then, um, the community has been advocating for it to become publicly funded because without public funding, it really isn't accessible to the majority of people. So yeah, the the first thought was just such excitement, so much excitement for the individuals who now will have access to this, um, what can be life transforming treatment. You mentioned the accessibility for people to get access to the treatment. What does that cost look like for an individual before this approval for funding? So the um, public cost isn't um, exactly clear, but it's probably about a million dollars per treatment. Um, the actual um, cost that the government's paying, it's a proprietary number, so okay. we, we don't exactly know that. But it would be quite a bit for an individual if they were seeking this out without government, uh, without government approval. Yeah, so we know that before it was publicly funded, a few individuals were able to get treatment through their either their or their... Um, their families' health insurance plans, um, private health insurance plans. But um, nobody, as far as we know, has got it um, pro through private, privately funding it mm -hmm, themselves. Mm -hmm. Th this question may be a little bit too deep in the weeds, but mm -hmm. Ontario is not the first province to actually approve some of this coverage. Quebec, Alberta, and Saskatchewan have already taken mm -hmm. this step. What's the experience been like for those three provinces that have already undertaken this funding approval? 
So I think it's it's been a little bit mixed. So in Alberta, they were the first treatment, first province, sorry, to actually treat patients. So they announced approval and they treated patients essentially at the same time, which is extremely exciting. Um, Saskatchewan has now approved as well, and they will be sending any patients who are eligible to Alberta for treatment. Quebec was the first province actually to announce that they were going to be um, paying for Luxterna publicly. However, they're still working through some of the, I would say, logistics of delivering what is a really innovative, um, really groundbreaking treatment. And so because it's the first time a treatment like this has been delivered, there really are a lot of things to set up. Mm. So I think that can maybe explain why Ontario took so long. So they were doing a lot of that work beforehand before they announced approval so now they're ready to go and they're ready to start treating yeah zooming out and picking up on that thought a little bit this is groundbreaking in the sense this is one of the first gene therapies to ever be approved by use for health canada and now four provinces are moving into the covering the cost of the treatment what do you think this means for the future of gene therapies so luxterna is um only for individuals who have a very specific gene mutation. So they have mutations in the RPE65 gene. And so it's uh, in Canada, we think there's between 40 and 50 individuals who this treatment, who might be eligible for this treatment. So while it's extremely exciting for them, it's also, I think, exciting for the broader inherited retinal disease or inherited eye disease community, um, or anybody who has a genetic disease at all, because it's really showing the progress that we are making in developing some of these personalized gene-specific therapies. So we really hope that Luxterna is only the first of what will be many, many more gene therapies to come in the coming years. Yeah, as sort of a concluding thought on this approval for the funding of Luxterna, this is something Fighting Blindness Canada has been advocating for for a long time. Right off the top, you mentioned that it's exciting, but how does this fit into the bigger picture of advocacy and research that FBC has been taking part in for, for years now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Fighting Blindness Canada's mission is to fund research, and we were started by families whose children had retinitis pigmentosa and who were looking for to understand more about the disease and to find treatment. So this really feels like a culmination of almost 50 years of work, of um, funding research that has pushed us now to this first gene therapy. But of course, having a treatment available, it's only um, it's only useful if people can have access to it. So that's mm-hmm. why advocacy is such a natural piece of what Fighting Blindness Canada does, trying to make sure that individuals living in Canada have access to treatments that they need um, as soon as possible. Dr. Moniz, switching gears here a little bit, one of the running jokes on the show is there are so many awareness days and awareness weeks that we have trouble keeping track, but there is an important one coming down the pipeline. World Glaucoma Week is coming up next week. What does Fighting Blindness Canada have planned to mark the occasion? So first of all, we have our message for everybody to go out and get an eye appointment. This is, uh, you probably get tired of hearing me say it, but (laughs) for so many eye diseases, that's really the first step. Um, In many cases, um, glaucoma has no symptoms. Glaucoma is the um, leading cause of irreversible blindness in the world. So it impacts so many people. In Canada alone, almost 800,000 Canadians are living with glaucoma. And we know that for the most common type, which is called open angle glaucoma, there can often be no symptoms at the early stages. And once vision loss occurs with glaucoma, it is irreversible. So there are treatments that can help stop progression for for many people, but if you lose vision, that vision isn't coming back. So it's really important to go for your regular um, eye appointments, um, making sure, especially if there is a family history or if you are at higher risk of glaucoma, that you're going and getting your eye pressure checked out, your optic nerve checked out, which you can do at a comprehensive eye exam. 
And then in terms of what Fighting Bodies Canada has has booked, we actually have a glaucoma webinar that is, is going to be in April. It's not actually in, in March, but it's going to be a really exciting one where we're talking about some of the more innovative glaucoma treatments, including minimally invasive glaucoma surgeries that are starting to come on the market. So that is in April. And during the month, if you want to watch any, we have a lot of content on our website, both about glaucoma as well as pre-recorded webinars from past viewpoint sessions that you can can go and learn a little bit more about about this important eye disease. Yeah, the amount of discussions and research that you share on the website on your social media channels is just remarkable. A reminder, where is the website? Where should people go if they want to learn more about previous webinars or even get signed up for this webinar coming up in April? So all the information is on our website at fightingblindness.ca. See, I knew that one, but I, but I wanted to put you to the test. I wanted mm-hmm. to make sure you were paying attention to that one. <laughs> Dr. Moniz, one last question here. and it's, it, it's operating under this premise of there being so many awareness days and awareness weeks. How difficult is it for an organization like FBC that's doing such important advocacy, such important research, to stand out on these days when sort of on the same week it might be National Food Waste Week and, you know, like, like a million other weeks and days. How, how difficult is it for organizations doing this work to stand out when there are so many days, months, weeks uh, of awareness to try and sort of fight through the noise. I, I think that's a really good point. Um, so a part of our, our mandate when we're trying to talk about these awareness days is talking to people who maybe don't know as much about the eye disease, but then it's also trying to talk to people within our community who have these eye diseases. So giving them some more information, some more resources, uh, making them feel heard as well. So it's a little bit of a combination. It is sometimes really hard to to break through the noise, and you sometimes don't know. Like one week you, you might like, you know, a story might land. I'm sure you know this being in media and other weeks, something really important is happening in the world. And um, the Awareness Days maybe doesn't quite get that much importance, but we, we do our best to, you know, keep on talking about it even throughout the year. The Awareness Day, the Awareness Month, it's a good opportunity to talk about it, but we try to keep our messages going throughout the year. Um, just because the month's over, we're not going to stop talking mm-hmm. about um, Glaucoma Week. Dr. Meniz, you're so generous with your time. Thank you for spending more of it with us today. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. That's Dr. Larissa Meniz, Director of Research and Mission Programs at Fighting Blindness Canada. Fightingblindness.ca is where you go for more information. Fightingblindness.ca. Really a lot of great content for you to consume there about research into vision health. Coming up next, Megan Gilmore returns with another accessibility report on the ongoing saga that is the Canada Disability Benefit as it works its way through the halls of Parliament. But first, here is Canadian press reporter Karen Rebo with your Morning Business Minute. Canada's main stock index edged lower yesterday on weakness in energy stocks. Toronto's TSX index falling 66 points to close at 20,514. In New York, the Dow Jones average gained 40 points and the Nasdaq gave back 13. In Tokyo this morning, the Nikkei index rose 71 points and our dollar is trading overseas this morning at 73.37 cents US. Global shares were mixed in muted trading today as investors await moves by the US Federal Reserve. Fed Chair Jerome Powell will testify before Congress today and tomorrow. Investors looking to snag some insight into the Fed's interest rate path. The Bank of Canada is expected to announce tomorrow that it will be holding its key interest rate after eight increases since last March. Members of Parliament are gearing up to grill CEOs of Canada's largest grocery store chains at the Commons Agriculture Committee tomorrow. It's all part of its study on food inflation. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Karen Rebeau.
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The saga of the legislation to create a national disability benefit, a federal disability benefit, uh, continues. The benefit it currently sits in the Senate more than a month after being passed by the House of Commons. Accessibility reporter Megan Gilmore is here to provide an update. Take good morning, Megan. Good morning, Dave. How are you? Uh, Megan, I'm well. So you have been on this beat uh, pretty much nonstop for the better part of a couple of years now. How much <laughs> yeah, time much. has the Senate been giving to the disability benefit since it got to that chamber? Sure. So since it got to the chamber, it has had about three days of debate. The last day was on February 16th. Um, and just a couple of notes to that. When I say it's had three days of debate, that does not mean that the senators spent the entire session discussing this benefit. Like They're they are discussing many pieces of legislation. Uh, there's many topics before the Senate. So there have been there's been time set aside to ask questions about this piece of legislation and like i said the last date was february 16th which as everybody knows that's like close to three weeks ago now the senate has not sat since then so like it came back it came back this week so um that's why there's been a delay uh or not really a delay that's why there's been so long since they last talked about it uh, yeah a gap so, well a gap yeah. it's been there's been a gap yeah it's been a gap right but that, that doesn't mean that the senators have forgotten about it it just means that they were not sitting um and it's back on the order paper for today the senate is back so megan what have been in in those three times that it's mm -hmm. been discussed what have been yeah. the main points of discussion so it would be very similar to what you would have heard at the HUMA committee, parliamentary committee that was looking at it, very similar to what you heard in the House of Commons, very similar to what you might have heard on okay. this program. Okay, as okay. Discussing this. So yeah, so the basic things would be uh, like senators who were talking in support of this benefit, talking about like we need to pass this now. There's a lot of like really personal stories about their fam some of in some cases their family members who have disabilities and have difficulty um, accessing employment, accessing uh, financial security, and the big argument, like we need this now, the situation is dire. Then on the other side of it, you have senators who also say, yes, we need this, but they're critical of the bill, they're critical of it being a framework piece of legislation. They say that it leaves too much to the regulations and that it doesn't actually guarantee anything. And some of those concerns for some senators are partly due to the fact that this bill passed unanimously. So uh, for many people, myself included, it might be easy to say, oh, a bill passed the House of Commons unanimously. This is great. Yay, we all agree. But some senators, and remember, the role of the Senate is to give sober second thought mm -hmm, to legislation. Mm -hmm. They would say, okay, does this mean that nobody actually looked at this critically? Like, did you just all say, and, and I'm paraphrasing for that, but like, did you just all pass this, and now we're the ones who have to go through and find things that need to be made stronger. So it is the fact that it was passed unanimously a sign that it was weak legislation because nobody could, you know, nobody really stood up to it, that type of thing. So Megan, with those criticisms in mind and understanding mm -hmm. there's been some history here of the bill moving back and forth uh, between these yep. two chambers, how does this fit into previous conversations the Senate has had in addressing this topic? Sure. So, yeah, like it's, to be clear, this is not the first time that the Senate has addressed the um, the very big concern of disability poverty in Canada. Uh, that conversation did not start 
in September 2020 when then Governor General Julie Payette announced that this benefit was coming in the speech from the throne. This conversation did not start during COVID-19 and when the government rolled out CERB and it was $2,000, okay? That's maybe when it hit more public, like everybody realized this is a thing, but this has been discussed uh, for a very long time. Uh, so one of the things that's been brought up, particularly among senators who are critical about some parts of this legislation, is that the Senate has been discussing this at least since 2009. So the Senate has, uh, in reports, warned about the complexity of disability benefits, particularly the disability tax credit and then the mm -hmm. registered disability savings plan. They're both very helpful, also both very complex pieces of um, financial benefits. Yeah, so and, that's and, and, yeah, and without the DTC, without the disability tax credit, you can't right. get the RDSP. Exactly, right? So it's all interconnected and the RDSP is, I have one, I'm grateful, and the CRA has written quite strongly that this is a very complex, convoluted system that needs to be, be addressed. But then also in 2009, there was a Senate committee that wrote a report that called for the creation of a basic income for those with severe disabilities, and that this income, this basic income would replace provincial social assistance programs. Mm -hmm. So some senators have been very clear in saying, like, remember, like we talked about this in 2009, this piece of legislation that is before the chamber right now it is not replacing anything. It's always been very clear from the government that this is to supplement mm -hmm. uh, provincial and territorial social assistance programs, with that, which then, of course, Dave, as you know, brings us to the sticking point of how do we guarantee that those existing programs will not be clawed back once individuals start to receive this benefit? Mm -hmm. So, Megan, you've been following the story as a journalist. You and I have been talking yeah. about this on the air and off the air for, for some yeah. time. There's perhaps an understanding that there's a double-edged sword here to the way in which this is working its way through the halls of parliament, that it's going very, very slowly, let alone actually the creation of the framework, even if this framework for regulation even passes. Mm -hmm. But that said, if it was moving too quickly, what's the what's the criticism? What's the criticism we would hear? It's moving too quickly. Nobody's paying attention. So as right. you ref as you reflect on the way you've been following this story, what's your reaction to the way that this particular piece of legislation seems to have bogged down a bit in the Senate? Right. Um, it's a really good question. And first, I'd like to, like, like to be very clear. While people are critical about some of the elements of this bill, they are very quick to praise Minister Carla Poultro for bringing it forward. They're very quick to praise opposition MPs who have been working and calling on this, whether that's from the NDP party with Benita Zarillo or the Green Party with Mike Morris. Uh, so people are supportive of this idea. It's just the question of, how do we do it? And I think that's where people are getting stuck, um, maybe in a good way, actually, about trying to figure it out. Um, so the intentions, I think, are good. Uh, it's just more like, what do, what do we do about it? Yeah. And like, it is interesting to note that there have been Senate reports going back more than a decade um talking about this need so i would just like to say yes there was cross-party support for this uh piece of legislation in the house of commons but throughout history there has been cross-party neglect of mm -hmm. this topic right mm -hmm. 2009 the conservatives were in power 2019 like 
later on, 2018, 2019, when the other reports were coming out, the liberals were in power. So I think what we're really facing is just a bottleneck effect of so many issues have been raised. You know, disability tax credit has been raised for decades. Registered disability savings plan. Canada was innovative in that we were leaders. I think we were the first country mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. have that. Like that is a big deal by a conservative government. It's a conservative government that finally got that through. Um, but people have been bringing concerns about that from the beginning of its creation, and none of those issues were addressed. So now this comes along, and we're trying to kind of do everything, I feel like, in, in one follow sweep with this legislation, while also concurrently the Senate is discussing amendments to medical assistance and dying legislation, which very much directly affects, affects people with disabilities. So there's so much happening at one time, and I think a lot of it has to do with systemic concerns were not addressed when they were raised years and years and years and yeah. years ago. I, the way that I look at, at it, Megan, is there's a little bit of self-defeatingness to this, right? Where the Senate says, mm -hmm. well, we have to give this sober second thought. There's not enough information here, but to get more information, you need to pass this bill. You need to go right. let the government go frame regulations yeah. and go negotiate with the provinces. Now, I'm no constitutional lawyer. I, these are billable <laughs> hours that I cannot afford. Cannot, My yeah. education is not up to snuff for that. But I wonder if there's some kind of caveat you could put in the approval of this saying, hey, we're going to let you go to the provinces, but this must get signed off again before we're going to give this full approval. You have to talk to the provinces first. We need more information. We're going to approve this bill to create a framework. Go talk to the provinces and then bring us the framework back. Now, again, that's more ups and downs from different chambers in yeah. national parliaments and provincial legislatures and probably even bringing in municipal governments and more consultations. And next thing you know, it's 2029 and you and I are still doing this segment about, oh, it's in, it's in the Senate again. <laughs> And Megan, what are the concerns? But <laughs> yeah, to, yeah. but to a certain degree, I, I, at a certain point, I'm I'm, I'm going to uh, uh, paraphrase an inappropriate statement. You have to crap or get off the pot. And at this point, the Senate needs to stop saying we're so smart, we're the sober sober second thoughters. No, pass it. Let's move forward and see what we get. Yeah, and it's also like for me. I don't know if this is just because, like you said, we have been discuss discussing this since 2020. I'd like to note, I think this is the only media organization in Canada that's been regularly discussing this since 2020. Um, and I'm comfortable with my other colleagues hearing me say that. Um, so, but if I hear one more time, like we're concerned about there being clawback. Yes, we are all concerned about that. <laughs> yeah. That has been addressed so many times. Like. Yes, we hear you, we know, understood. Can we move on to the next concern? If yes, you're just going to yes. keep repeating the same concerns, there again, there are people in this country who are dying because they do not have the basic necessities yeah. of life, okay? Even, so, even, make it, even if they're not dying, there's people suffering. There's just like a yeah, huge okay. number of people who are just suffering. Right. So, like, we know, like, we know what the concerns are. If your concerns are not new, please keep your comments about them brief. Um, <laughs> yeah. We understand. Can we please keep this going? And again, I'm not a constitutional lawyer either. I am super, super interested to see about uh, all, like, the way this is going to come down to the provinces. There are some provinces in this country who have, in the past few years, fairly routinely um, ask for court references on certain pieces of national uh, legislation, typically in terms of the environment. 
But I, I'm interested in seeing how different provincial governments are going to respond to this. I hope we don't see a court challenge to this legislation, but we live in a federal. <laughs> uh, there's a couple. There's a couple premiers who might uh, not be too happy about uh, yeah. about about more money flowing unless it goes into their pockets. Uh, Megan, let's do a little bit of housekeeping on the way out of here. Sure. I want to ask you our daily poll question, which folks yep. can find at Accessible Media on Twitter at Accessible Media Inc on Facebook. Megan, the question is pretty simple. The answer can be a little sure. bit complex. Do you find it difficult to access information about government services? My answer on this is an overwhelming yes. You go to a government website and it's just legal and semicolons yeah. and dashes and hashes and links and next thing you know you just give up do you find it difficult and listen you're well educated a great reader do you find it difficult to access the information you're looking for uh, in terms of uh, government services yes yes i do um partly because of all the like you said all like the hashtags all the legalese all the whatever or like they'll be like frequently asked questions and like yes here it is. Here is our plain language explanation. And it's literally like, let us paste, like copy and paste a text of a law <laughs> into the frequently asked question answer. And I'm like, that did not help me. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> um, so yeah, that, um, it's also very, and this actually does come up a lot actually in this segment when we've been talking to, let's say the chief accessibility officer or the chief accessibility commissioner about particularly disability services how um, how spread out they are among different government departments and agencies. Mm -hmm. And you don't really know that necessarily from the onset. If you're just like, oh, I need like a new wheelchair or something, and you've never done it before, they're, depending on how, how connected you are or not to these things, there actually like isn't a guide to help you know at which point does this government service interact with that one interact mm -hmm. with this different one so it can be really really complicated and as much as i sometimes have gotten irritated by the the discussions on this piece of legislation i do think what it is highlighting for people is just how complex our already existing landscape of disability policy is. Yeah, there's so many pieces from so many different levels of governments. You almost never know where to start, so let alone for something like that disability tax credit. Just, just, just I, I dare anybody during the commercial break, Google how to apply for the disability tax credit in Canada and get back to me and tell me how easy it is to find information about government yeah. services. And what's interesting about the disability tax credit too, like for me, so I was born legally blind. So I've had the DTC my entire life. Yeah, same like, here. Even, same here. Thank God. Thank God. Thank God for my mother, the accountant. Yeah. Right. Like, um, I didn't even know I had the disability tax credit until I was like, this is a true story. Until I was in my early twenties, and my dad at the time did my filed my taxes every year, partly because he's my father, partly because he loves it. Like he actually gets really excited about it. And he was, and at the time I was living in, in Whitehorse, and I just graduated from university, and he was like. This is the best. You have normal living allowance. You have all your tuition credits. And then you have like your disability tax credit, obviously. And I was like, obviously, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? Um, he's like, well, you know, and I was like, no, like this piece of information was never relayed to me because I never asked and I didn't know it was a thing that existed. Um, so in the past few years, especially uh, when this conversation really ramped up again during COVID when the government was putting forward its one-time measly payment, uh, for Canadians with disabilities um, and disability tax credit eligibility was coming up. I was like, I am so incredibly grateful mm -hmm. that for me, it was a pretty quick thing. But even then, Dave, I've heard stories of people who are in a similar situation to us who are like, oh no, 
one year, somebody randomly decided to audit me and see if I was still disabled for my lifelong yeah. disability. Yeah. I don't even I don't even know how I'd prove that. Like, show me an eye chart. Show me an eye chart, and I promise right. you, like, I will I answer it honestly. Like, put me behind the wheel of a car. Ooh. That would be illegal. Like, I will gladly give up my disability tax credit if they let me drive. Uh, but that's bad for everybody involved. Uh, Megan, yeah. Megan, we got to yeah. be real quick on this. Quick slants. Connecting yeah. Disability. You're the host of that podcast on the AMI I Podcast Network. The February episode dropped a few weeks ago, but if somebody missed it, what was the episode about? Yeah, it's about uh, living as a black family when you have a family member with a disability. So I talked to Clovis and Sharon Grant from Saubona Afrocentric Circle of Care, which is a not-for-profit that they created based out of Toronto that helps uh, families of African descent uh, get support for disability. It was uh, partly some Black History Month comes in there. It released February 15th. They're a married couple. We hit Valentine's Day and Black History Month all in one episode. But no, it's, it's a great discussion about uh, like race and culture, how that influences disability services, and also the role of fathers in parenting mm. the disability. And Megan, one more quick slant. You reported yep. last Friday you were going to the Carlton mm -hmm. Ravens, Ottawa yep. Gigi's college basketball game last weekend. How was your I experience? Okay, it was good overall. It was my first time going. Um, we lost. The Ravens lost to the Gigi's, uh, which is very sad. Big cross-town rivalry. Um, also, nobody knows what a GG is. Okay, everyone knows what a Raven is. It's a bird. What is a Gigi? Somebody answer. Somebody <laughs> options um but then i was sitting i had the privilege of sitting next to two men who are like longtime season ticket holders of the ravens and they did great commentary uh but they were like oh don't worry megan like they often don't show up to this final because they know that they're playing in the championships in halifax this weekend so they want to like save their best energy for the nationals and because both they and the ggs have like spots and nationals you know provincials doesn't matter and i was like well i can't go to halifax for the nationals <laughs> so if anyone wants to explain to me the convoluted world that is university sports in canada or college basketball in the states it is march i would appreciate it i'm on twitter you can I, hit me up my dms are open I, I i don't have time today megan but but one day I'll, one day I'll, I'll try to explain it to you but you mentioned you want a segment where that's all we do yeah we can do that at at megan gilmore is where you find <laughs> megan on twitter at megan gilmore megan is spelt m-e-a-g-a-n and then gilmore is g-i-l-l-m-o-r-e megan we are flat out of time thank you for hanging out a little bit extra with us today no problem. Have a good rest of the show. That's accessibility reporter Megan Gilmore in Ottawa. Coming up next, Dorothy McNaughton explains how you can go about advocating for accessible pedestrian signals in your community. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Yesterday's daily poll stirred up a lot of comments about the caliber of snow and ice removal in your city or town. Now, some cities and towns will tell you that, ah, snow is an irregularity. It's something we cannot control. We're not prepared for it. It cannot be expected, even though we live in Canada where there is winter. Something that cities can control is crosswalk accessibility and crosswalk safety, including the installation of accessible pedestrian signals. However, 
many, many cities and communities are lacking on that front too. Community reporter Dorothy McNaughton is in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, where there's lots of advocacy going on around accessible pedestrian signals. And Dorothy's here to offer up a bit of advice on how you can advocate, advocate in your neck of the woods. Hey, good morning, Dorothy. Good morning, Dave. Dorothy, you are no stranger to advocacy <laughs> at all. And accessible pedestrian signals, i.e. sort of uh, crosswalks that uh, make beeping sounds or play music to get you across the street safely, are uh, becoming more common, but they're really not common enough. So how would you evaluate the state of accessible pedestrian signals and accessible crosswalks in your neck of the woods? Well, it's it's not too bad. It's just I think they need to prioritize a few more uh, key locations. Um, I was on one of the original accessibility advisory committees in this city many years ago, and and at that point they were called audible pedestrian signals, and they they were just being implemented. So. The good thing about our city is when they reconstruct an intersection, they're putting those in on a more regular basis Mm. where the busiest intersections are, and that's great. And there are uh, quite a few at key locations, but the one that concerns me the most is the one um, that's near where you have to get to go to the vision loss rehabilitation uh, office. And you'd think that would be a pretty important spot to consider. Yes, and they've been there a few years. So the other thing about that location is um, Northern Avenue is one of the streets uh, where the where the bus goes, and then the bus turns onto North Street. Um, Northern Avenue is really, really busy. So when they turn the corner and drop you off by Superior Heights High School, you have to cross the street where there's no light to get to where the... Um, finished rest home is and the apartment building where the, the office is located. So you either cross in the middle of the street and take your life in your hands oh dear. <laughs> or you go back to the corner, which is the most sensible thing to do and cross at that corner. But it would make a huge difference to have the accessible pedestrian signal there. So Dorothy, how is the current advocacy that you're doing on this file going? What kind of response have you received from the city? I, I know you're a well-known uh, figure at town hall by this point. Yes. um, Well, it has been raised at the Accessibility Advisory Committee level. Like, I have not done um, advocacy directly to city council or city staff about that intersection, but uh, one of our um, Canadian Council of the Blind members is on the AAC. Now we have two of them on there, and they are bringing it forward again. Um, We'll see where that goes uh, because, you know, they have input through the accessibility coordinator mm-hmm. to the city staff who handles these things. And I'm hoping that way they can move it up the line. Not every community in Canada, though, has an accessibility advisory committee. Yeah. So, yes, yeah, so, Dorothy, right. not to interrupt, but along those lines, yeah. how do you recommend people elsewhere in the country? Because this is not an issue that is that is local to Sault Ste. Marie. No. It exists in big cities like Toronto. It exists in medium-sized cities like Halifax. It exists in small cities like Sault Ste. Marie. It just yes. persists across the country. How would you suggest people go about advocating to their communities, their city councils, their town halls, etc. Yes, I mean, they can either go to city council, but I, I feel this is more a staff issue. So, I mean, I've done this before. I would go to the top. <laughs> I would go to the mayor. Uh, well, I mean, he's he's council, but I would go to the mayor or the CEO um, because they are the ones that um, 
can can bring more awareness to it. Um, I, I went to the CEO quite a few years ago for various issues, um, you know, and, you know, it may not get the results you want, but um, at least it makes them aware. And then if it doesn't go anywhere, you can, anybody can speak to council. You just have to arrange ahead of time to be there and you can present the issue to council. So, mm. you know, I would say that would be my second line of attack, so yeah. to speak. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, about a year ago, community reporter Melinda Kazanavishis in Halifax described her experience doing an audit of accessible crossing signals in Halifax in the HRM and found that it was totally woeful. There were a bunch that were out of service, they weren't working properly. That's something that I've observed in Toronto, especially a couple around uh, the Don Mills area, you press the button, nothing happens. The yes. one thing that I would love, I don't know if you remember during the pandemic, Dorothy, a couple of communities brought in a policy that said you no longer had to press the button for the accessible crossing signal to kick in without right. you having to do anything for it. I really think we need to start moving back to a policy like that. I really don't care if cars have to sit at a cross uh, at a at a red light for an extra uh, thirty seconds or twenty mm -hmm. seconds in the middle of the night while a walking signal goes up for pedestrians that aren't there. Like at this point, we should just be building these things as automated. It's anytime there's a walking man that pops up or a walking thing that pops up. Sorry, I shouldn't gender the walking the walking <laughs> stick figure. Anytime something pops up. The sound hits. You shouldn't be putting the onus on people with disabilities to find and press the button. This stuff should be occurring automatically. Absolutely, I agree. And there is that capability. So that that's an excellent solution. Uh, Dorothy, switching gears to something a little more fun. Last time you were on the show, you talked about the Bonsu Winter Festival. And uh, and I called it the Busu Winter Festival. And I still think <laughs> that could be the Halloween festival. But you wanted to offer a little bit of a recap because you had a really interesting time. You had the opportunity to learn about feather wrapping. So what did you learn in this experience? Oh, it was amazing. Um, it, it was uh, it was. I learned about a lot of uh, Indigenous cultures. So I learned that um, not just anyone is allowed to use eagle feathers, um, only certain members of the Indigenous community, elders, for example. And you can't pick, you aren't supposed to pick an eagle feather up off the ground. So we used um, turkey feathers, which they can buy in packages. <laughs> and, uh, and then we, we took... Um, treated deer hide strips and wrapped it around the shaft and then put a little loop on it, ta taped it on, um, glued it on, and then um, took a thinner strip through the little loop to make a, a, a loop hanging from the bottom and put beads on it that we could choose any color we wanted and then tied a knot at each end and that was our special feather and and um the woman giving the course said um don't just stick it away somewhere put it where you can see it and what what it can be used for it can be used in smudging ceremonies where they kind of um waft the smoke um to cover and give blessings and then it can be used to sort of point up to the sky to take our messages to the creator i, I thought it mm. was quite lovely and and they really look um special you know dorothy i know you were well i actually didn't take in the good thing was there were more events than during covid because and as you're older or have a disability, you don't feel comfortable either being with a lot of crowds or not knowing the environment. Um, 
and it can be like 30 below, you know, so mm-hmm. I, I, I didn't really want to go outside. There weren't very many indoor activities, and, and when they did have them, there was playing cards at the senior center, you know, and, and, and I'm sure they don't have Braille cards. They may have large print cards, but they don't have Braille cards. So we are a big seniors community. So I have, I'm going to do some more advocacy data. <laughs> I, I, I have, am determined prior to next year's Bon Sue to encourage them to have more um, events that people with disabilities can more easily take part in. Indoor and outdoor. So mm. that's my mission for next year. Dorothy McNaughton always has a project, but always has it circled on her calendar for the Northern Ontario and Rural Get Together with Technology yes. Group. It would not be you and I having a conversation <laughs> unless you offered up a reminder about the next session. So what's on deck on March 21st at 7 p.m. Eastern Time? What is going to be discussed? Um, it's uh, it's for iOS uh, devices. It's rotors and quick settings. I, I'm not sure what that means because I have an Android, but um, <laughs> it it came up at our last meeting, um, and one of our members that was on the call said, um, "I'm not sure what a rotor is, or you know how to use it properly, or what have you." So that's what we're going to be discussing. Um, it, we always kind of base it on what people need or want. Um, so that way, um, you know, we're not just talking about anything and we're like just sort of tech issues generally. It's very mm-hmm. focused. It's focused and it meets people's needs. I think that's really important. Yeah, a real opportunity to have learning opportunities and learn about the technology, not just how to send yes. an email or two, but maximize the technology in our hands. Hey, Dorothy, exactly. we've got a scoot, but thank you for spending a little <laughs> bit of extra time with us today. All the best to you and uh, good luck with your new advocacy projects. Thank you so much. That's Dorothy McNaughton, community reporter in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario. If you want more information about the stories that we cover, especially in these segments where there's lots of links and information to talk about, ami.ca slash now, ami.ca slash now. That is the blog. Coming up after the break, it's the regional news update. Brock Richardson with a sports chat and Alex Smythe with the national weather update. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern Time on AMI-tv. Hi, I'm Jenny Bovard. Join me monthly for Low Vision Moments, where I speak with awesome guests about some of the amusing things that happen when you're blind or partially sighted. Watch on YouTube or download Low Vision Moments from your favorite podcast distributor.